Open your Bibles once again to Acts chapter 17. Our text this morning is again Acts 17 verses 1 through 15. But as we come to listen to the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray. And ask for His help to understand what He's saying to us. Lord God, who has given us the words of eternal life, grant us this day the freedom to choose You over the gods of our own making. Let us know you from within, and may your life-giving love flow out of us to others. Nourish us now with your word, we ask, through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, uh, fifth grade and below, come up and join me. Whew, it's a herd of them. Come on up. <laughs> yeah, come on up. Yeah, come on. You're good. Yeah. Uh, Find a spot right there on the front, maybe. All right, guys. uh, I started taking tennis lessons when I was five years old. And I've been playing on and off ever since. So I'm, I'm 42 now. So that's 37 years of playing tennis. But, you know, I have a confession to make. My old racket and I have never gotten the ball over the net. Do you want to see it? 
You want to see my old racket? Well, um, uh, well, you, you know that sound that uh, that other that other people get when they hit the ball really cleanly. It's it's sort of a satisfying thwack. Well, th this is what you hear every time I swing mine. It it's kind of a sad little swish, more than a, a thwack. But, you know, I, I just don't know why I can't seem to win a point. Do you? Why? Well, I mean, I mean, I know that's what you think. But, I, I mean, I've been playing tennis for 37 years, Laney. I, I think I know a little bit more about tennis than you do. Yeah, okay, well, look, guys, my racket is fine. I mean, look at this grip. The grip is awesome. The wood is super sturdy. And just look at the shape of the head. Like, it's, it's gorgeous. It, it's a great racket, right? I, I, okay, look, I hear you, but I don't see any room for improvement. Uh, look, okay, uh, it's not very nice of you to tell me that I have to change my way of playing. You guys are being mean to me. Okay, all right, you get the point. You are telling me that there is a better way to play, but I was getting mad, right? Let's think about that. I was getting mad because your words were threatening not just my game, but you were you were threatening my feeling of control, of self-reliance, my, my pride maybe. I wanted to play the game my way using my racket. And so I was angry when you said, no, that's the problem. The game doesn't work like that. You have to have the racket. And we see something similar in the book of Acts. Paul was just telling people the good news about Jesus being king, that he's the one who came to us. He suffered and he died for sinners like us to rescue us. And some people were eagerly receiving that good news, but others were rejecting it angrily. Why? Why did they reject it? It's because the good news about Jesus includes some bad news about us. The, the gospel tells us that you and I are all playing the game of life with broken strings. But more than that, we really want to keep playing that way without anyone telling us that we are wrong about it. And it is the hardest thing in the world for a person to admit that the main problem is not the racket with the hole. That can be fixed. The problem is me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. And a deep desire to be king, for me to be king, instead of letting Jesus be the king, that is why most people reject the good news about Jesus. Now, of course, when you and I are trying to help somebody understand the, the bad news, we don't need to make it harder than it already is. And if you and I remember that we ourselves are 
part of the problem. It, it'll help us be gentle when we're pointing that out to other people. But there's actually no way around it. If you and I are going to share the good news about Jesus with somebody, we're going to have to talk about the bad news too. Because Jesus himself says, unless a person denies themselves, that is, they say no to themselves, which is so hard it feels like dying. Unless a person does that and follows Jesus, that person can never be his disciple. Oh, but listen, if the Holy Spirit helps a person see that Jesus knows all the bad news about us even better than we do, but he loves us anyway. If God gives a person new ears to be able to hear and accept the good news and the bad news, then they will gladly embrace Jesus as king and hold on to him. And he will give them, like he's given us, not only full forgiveness, but also a repaired racket to play the game of life and a new heart that is being made whole like his. And because Jesus makes even the bad news about ourselves safe to believe, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. If you've not already done so, open your Bibles to Acts 17. Now, the third time that we are looking uh, at this passage, you, you see there just a reminder of the previous week's sermon and the uh, outline in the bulletin. We looked first at Paul's strategy. Uh, then we looked last week at his ministry there, uh, and now this morning uh, we're going to be looking at the response to Paul's ministry as well uh, as Paul's response to that response. And we will see first that some believed. When Paul preached the word there in Thessalonica and then again in Berea, some believed. But of course, that means that some did not. We will see, secondly, that some were jealous and even actively and hostily opposed Paul's ministry because of that jealousy. And then finally, we will see that Paul moved on, first from Thessalonica and then from Berea, when the opposition uh, to his ministry became uh, increasingly intense. But that in moving on, he, he neither abandoned his calling nor the church. Let's, let's look at each of these observations because, because I think each of these points teaches us something about our ministry today as ambassadors of the gospel. We are a church of Jesus Christ entrusted with the treasure of the gospel called to, to minister that gospel to one another and to our community. I think we can learn something important about our calling as ministers of the gospel in this text. Namely, we can learn that we are servants of the Savior. We are not the Savior. God does the saving. And, in, and the gospel is His power for the salvation of those who believe. We are called not to be the Savior, but to be ministers and heralds of His message of salvation. And that has important implications for the way uh, that we go about that work. So let's begin with the first observation. Some were persuaded. Some believed the gospel when Paul preached. Luke tells us there in verses 2 and 3 that Paul spent three Sabbath days in the synagogue in Thessalonica. And he, he spent those Sundays or those Sabbaths reasoning from the scriptures uh, with those who were there. And through that ministry, through that reasoning, through that, that exegesis and exposition of the scriptures, some were 
persuaded. Some of the Jews, that is, were persuaded. But it wasn't only Jews who responded. We're told also that a great many of the uh, the devout Greeks believed. This is a reference to the the God-fearers who also would have been there at the the synagogue. A a God-fearer is a a Gentile, a non-Jew, who believes in Yahweh, who believes in uh, the God of Abraham, believes that He is the one true and, and living God. But he has not fully converted to Judaism. That means he has, he has not received circumcision, nor has he submitted to the yoke of the ceremonial law. He has not submitted to the, to the food laws and all of the, uh, the ceremonies and the, uh, the, the uh, feast days. He is a believer in Yahweh, but he is not a full Jew. We're told that through Paul's ministry there in the synagogue, some of the Jews and, and many of the Gentiles, and we're also told even a few of the leading women, believed. Again, that seems to be a reference, not just to leading women in the synagogue, but leading women in the city. Prominent uh, women among the God-fearers who gathered there at the synagogue. So Paul's ministry bore fruit. Some, even many, and at times, believed. We, we see something similar in Berea. Luke tells us that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. And we see their nobility and that, and that they received the word that Paul was preaching with eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We, we see that in verse 11. And we, we consider the importance of examining and, and studying the Scriptures like the Bereans last Sunday. But this morning, I simply want you to see that, that even among these noble Bereans, even among uh, these Bereans who received the word with eagerness, some believed and some did not. The harvest was, was larger amongst the Bereans, but that many believe still means that some did not. The, the, the result, the, the fruit of Paul's ministry was mixed. And I think this teaches us something significant about our ministry today. Like Paul, we should seek to be fruitful. We, we saw that. We, we should seek to be not merely faithful, but we should seek to be fruitful. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We should seek to be faithful. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we don't need to worry about, about faithfulness. But we should, be seek, we should seek to be faithful in the way most likely to produce fruit in our particular context, in the situation that God has placed us. We, we saw this in, in Paul's strategy, his decision to go to Thessalonica. He was going to Thessalonica because if he could plant a church in Thessalonica, from there uh, that church could reach out into the surrounding community. He was seeking to maximize the harvest, and he was reasoning from the Scriptures. He was, he was seeking to show them that, that, that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that God had, had promised to do. He was seeking to be fruitful. But we must never think that our strategy somehow guarantees results. No matter, no matter how wise, no matter how fitting to our context, our strategies do not guarantee outcomes. Our, our strategies do not guarantee a harvest. As Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, God's ministers plant and God's ministers water, and they ought to do so wisely. But at the end of the day, it is God and God alone who can give the growth. It is God and God alone who can bring forth a, a harvest. Only God can make the ministry of the Word effective because only God can make those who are dead in their sins alive together with Christ. Only God can do that. Only God 
can bring us out of darkness into light. And this has profound implications for the way that we do ministry, the way we seek to be ambassadors of the gospel in our community. It means, first, that, that we must conduct our ministry in humble dependence upon God's empowering grace. Even as Austin prayed, our sufficiency is from Him. And one of the main ways that we express that dependence is through prayer. Prayer is an expression of our dependence upon God as we seek to be ambassadors of the gospel in the place that God has called us to do ministry. And that prayer expresses itself in, in any number of ways. First, it, it expresses itself in prayer for the one who is speaking. On Sunday mornings, that's me. I, I hope that you pray for me. I hope that you pray that, that I would be faithful and, and clear and, and bold. Even as Paul asked the churches to pray for him. You ought to pray for the ministry of the Word here at Trinity. You ought to pray uh, that that ministry is, is faithful and, and clear and effective. And you ought to pray not just for me, but for all who are called to teach and preach the Word. After this service, we'll be breaking up into our various Sunday school classes, and there will be, be teachers who are, who are leading different, different groups through the, the study of the Scriptures and through uh, the endeavor to understand and apply this Gospel to our lives. And you ought to pray for each and every one of them. And you ought to pray not only for the formal ministry of the Word here at the church, but you ought to pray uh, for, for all of those who speak the truth in love to one another as we do life together. You ought to pray for the ministry of the Word. Pray that it is faithful. Pray that it is clear. Pray that it is bold. And pray that it is effective. Because it is only God who can give the growth that we long to see. We gather, we minister the Word that we might build one another up towards maturity in Christ. And that only happens as God works through our pitiful efforts. So pray for, for all those who are ministers of the Word and pray for those who are being ministered to. That begins with yourself. Pray that as you are ministered to in the, in the context of the church and in the, uh, the context of, of doing life together with the other members of this body throughout the week, pray that your heart would be receptive. Pray that God would give you ears to hear. Pray that He would give you eyes to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Pray uh, that He would soften your heart to receive it. Pray that He would strengthen your will to bring forth its fruit in your lives. Pray for yourselves and, and pray for those around you. Pray for the others sitting in, in the pews. Pray that they too would be open to receive this, this gospel and to, to submit to it and to, to be conformed and, and shaped by it. And pray for those who are outside our community. Pray that God would, would give us opportunities to, to share the good news of the gospel with, with those in our community who do not yet know Him or who are not yet following Him. And pray that we would take advantage of those opportunities. That we would speak the truth when God opens the door. That we would give a reason for the hope that is ours in, in Jesus Christ. And that God would cause His Word to go forth powerfully in our community and even beyond our community as he opens doors this is what it means this is what it means to recognize that we are servants and he is the savior if we recognize that we are merely servants that we are merely heralds we will do the work that's been given to us in humble dependence upon his power god's work must be done in his strength but not only do we do this work in his strength we also need to do it his way that means that, that we must do this work by, 
by clearly and faithfully proclaiming the word. Now that seems obvious. We're, we're calling it the ministry of the word, after all. But how easy is it for us to, to, to think that, that something other than the, the faithful proclamation of the word is what's going to bring forth fruit? As I said, we, we must proclaim the word faithfully, and we want to do that, but, but there's, a, there's a temptation to want to twist it or to, to do it in a different way or to, to soften it, maybe to, to make it more effective in our, our context. But we don't. We, we proclaim the word. We proclaim the full word, even the bad news, as Sam said, the bad news about ourselves. We don't, we don't soften it. We don't broaden it. We don't modify it in any way. We seek simply to proclaim the gospel to those whom God has, has called us to minister, first to ourselves, then to one another, and then to our community. Of course, as we'll see in a moment, that, that gospel is the aroma of death to those who are perishing. That is a gospel that is offensive to those who reject it. But we cannot change it in order to seek to mitigate that offense. But rather, we must proclaim the full, unvarnished gospel. And we must do so without the the aid of, of manipulation, without the aid of, of trying to, to force people into a, into a place where they're going to respond to it. I can still remember one of the, the seasoned RUF ministers who, who trained me when I was first a, a campus minister at the University of North Carolina in Asheville. He, he said, listen, if all you want is a crowd, that's easy. Free pizza and beer will do it every time. He said, if, if, if all you want is a crowd, that's, that's easy. We don't want just a crowd. We don't want just a response. We want people to hear and to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not trying to manipulate. We're not trying to conjole. We are seeking to present Jesus Christ as a beautiful Savior and call people to repent and to respond to Him. That is what it is to, to be a minister of the gospel. But as I said, ministering that gospel means that we will sometimes receive significant opposition. That's the, the second thing I want you to see here this morning. Notice, first we're told that, that yes, some believe, but we're also told that the Jews were jealous, and in their jealousy, they set the city in an uproar. This is the, the response that Paul got to his faithful proclamation of the word. He, Luke goes on to tell us that that mob that was stirred up went on to attack the house of Jason, who, who we don't really know who that is, but we know that he or he seems to have been Paul's host there in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. The, the goal was to, to go to his house to find Paul and Silas and to drag them in front of the crowd for who knows what in. But when they didn't find them there at Jason's house, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting that, that these men were enemies of the state, men who had disturbed the peace and who were proclaiming Jesus to be a king, rival to Caesar. What's going on here? Why, why this hostile, intense response to Paul's ministry? Well, as I said, the gospel is the aroma of death. The, the word that, that Luke uses here is, is jealousy. And when I hear jealousy, I tend to, to think of, of you know, the, the pastor of the small church on the corner who's, who's jealous of the, the, the pastor of the big church down the street, jealous of all the, the people who are flocking to his ministry. But I wonder if that's exactly what Paul has in mind here. It's possible. Luke does tell us that a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women were responding to, to Paul and Silas and joining themselves to, uh, to this new work. But sometimes that word jealousy is a word that means zeal. 
And I think that might be more in line with, with what Luke has in mind here. It was the, the zeal, the, 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 the zeal of these people, but their, their zeal for what? What is it? What were they zealous for? I think they were zealous for the status quo. They were, they were zealous for their own cultural heritage. They were, they were zealous for their own tradition, all of which were being threatened by Paul's preaching. Now, the Jews themselves, I said, they, they probably saw this as a zeal for God and a, and a zeal for His law. After all, Paul and Silas, according to their mind, were, were enemies of, of God's established order. They were, they were preaching against Moses and against the law and against the temple. They saw them as leading people away from God. But that zeal was, was really a, a zeal not for God, but for themselves and for their own cultural heritage, for their own cultural position. Because these Jews understood that receiving Jesus as the Christ would change everything for them. If Paul's gospel was true, if, if Jesus was indeed the Christ as we believe today, then they could no longer see themselves as better than everyone else. They could no longer see themselves as, as privileged in their relationship with God. They, they could no longer see themselves as above the, the Gentile sinners and the, and the Jews who didn't keep the law as scrupulously as they did. If Jesus was the Christ, and if salvation was by faith in Him alone apart from works of the law, the gospel that Paul proclaimed was true, then their works of the law afforded them no advantage. Their works of the law afforded them no special status, no, no security. And that is what they were rejecting. And I think their jealousy, again, teaches us something important about the ministry of the gospel in our day. The faithful proclamation of Jesus as the Christ, as Jesus as the alone Savior of sinners, and the proclamation that, that all that is His can be yours by faith alone, the faithful proclamation of that gospel of grace, it relegates all other identity markers. As Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female. In Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's the, the result of the gospel. In Christ you are a sinner saved by grace. That is your standing before the Father. That is how you are adopted into God's family. You are a sinner alienated from God and you have been saved by grace, received through faith and faith alone. And therefore, you cannot think of yourself as, as closer to God because of your ethnicity as the, as the Jews did or, or because of your socioeconomic status or because of political affiliation or because of cultural heritage or because of anything else that you might claim as, as your identity. And nor can you think of others as less than you because of these things. And it's that reality, that, that, that relegating of all other identities that causes so many to reject the good news of Jesus and even to, to actively oppose it. They reject it and they oppose it because that which they have staked their life on, that which they have claimed is their identity, that which is who they are, how they value themselves, how they, how they see themselves as significant, that is being set aside. And they are being called to renounce themselves to follow Jesus. They are being called to see themselves as sinners saved by grace, period. 
And we need to understand this. We, we need to understand that, that, the, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. It is the, the aroma of death to those who are perishing. It is, it is not simply a, a restaurant recommendation. It is not simply a, a recommendation of a, of a movie that someone uh, once liked. I've, I've heard the, uh, evangelism described that way, and it makes no sense. When, when you recommend a movie, not much is at stake. When you proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, everything is at stake. And so when you proclaim this gospel, it will stir up opposition amongst those who, whom God has not yet given ears to hear among those who, who have not yet been given eyes to see. We pray that God will soften their hearts. We pray that God will open their eyes. We pray that, that He will, will give them ears to hear. But in their natural state, in their flesh, until God does that work of grace, they will not simply dismiss the gospel. They will hate it. And some of them will actively and aggressively oppose it. Because it is the aroma of death. It is claiming that, that they are lost apart from Christ. That they are separated from God. That they are without hope. This gospel we proclaim, it, it feels like a threat. And if it doesn't, that might indicate that we aren't proclaiming the full apostolic gospel. The Jews who, who stirred up the crowd, they were by no means honest. The, the charges that they, they bring against Paul and Silas are, are not honest charges, but they at least understood this that Paul was proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Paul was proclaiming Jesus as King. And that means that all who receive Him must receive Him as King. And to receive a King is to bow to Him completely. It's to see yourself as His subject. As we seek to be ministers of this Gospel to one another and in this community, we must never soft-pedal the cost of discipleship. We must never soft-pedal the, the, the reality that we must deny ourselves to follow in order to produce fruit. Because if we sell Christ without the cross, then whatever fruit we get will not be fruit to the glory of God. We must remember that those who, who lose their lives to follow Jesus, yes, they find abundant life, but they must lose their lives. This is the gospel we proclaim. And as ministers of this gospel, we must never shrink back from calling people to lose their lives to follow Jesus. This is, this is the reality. We must proclaim the word and we must proclaim it truly and we must proclaim it completely because we are servants of the Savior. Third thing I want us to see this morning is, is how Paul responds to this response. We've seen that some believed and some did not, and some even actively opposed Paul. So, so how did Paul respond when he was opposed in this way? Well, just briefly, I want you, I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice first that, that when Paul was actively opposed, he moved on. He moved on first from Thessalonica, and then he will move on from Berea. But that in moving on, he neither abandoned his calling nor the church. So first, just notice that, that Paul moves on. We, we see this in verse 10. We're, we're told that the, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away. When the, when the hostility becomes intense there in Thessalonica, the, the brothers send Paul and Silas away. They, they send them down the road to 
Berea. And then when those same brothers from Thessalonica follow Paul there to, to Berea and start stirring up trouble there, we're told that again, they send them on, conducting them as, as far as Athens. And so but twice, Paul is, is willing to move on uh, when the, uh, when the uh, hostility becomes intense. And, and again, this, this teaches us uh, something significant, that, that sometimes in the face of hostility, our best option is to move on. Now, we can't say that ministers of the gospel should always move on. We should not say that we should always just simply dust the, the dirt off our feet when, when the hostility becomes intense. We know from other passages that, that sometimes God calls His servants to stand firm in the face of opposition. So what do you do? How do you know whether you're supposed to move on or whether you're supposed to, to stay? Clearly, there are, there's a time to move on. Clearly, there's a, there's a time to, to stay. And, and all I can tell you is that wisdom is required. I wish I could give you a formula, but I can't. I can't give you the, the, the X's and the O's that say, well, this is exactly when you should move on. This is exactly when you should, you should stay. But, but wisdom is required. And in recent years, we have seen missionaries have to make hard choices in Afghanistan and Ukraine. And in previous years, of course, we've, we've seen missionaries face similar choices in, in Asia and in, in Africa and other parts of the, of the world. Here in the United States, we've seen campus ministers forced to, to make tough choices when administrations have, have sought to, to kick them off of campuses. And some of you have, have faced similar choices regarding family and friends who strongly oppose the gospel. Do you keep pressing? Do you keep preaching the gospel to them? Or do you back off? There's no formula. Wisdom is required. We, we must seek the, the Lord's guidance. and We must seek the, the counsel of, of uh, faithful brothers and sisters in, in Christ. We must seek to determine the best way forward. But whatever we decide, whether, whether we decide that this is a situation where we must keep pressing in and standing firm, or whether this is a situation where we move on, what I really want you to notice is the second point here. That when Paul leaves, he does not abandon his calling nor does he abandon the church. So there will be times to move on, and there will be times to, to stand firm. But whether we stand firm or move on, we must not abandon our calling. We, we see this in, in verse 10. Notice what's going on there. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, what did they do? And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. He just continued right on ministering the gospel. He decided that it was time to move on from Thessalonica, but he didn't move on from his calling. He was a minister of the gospel. And so when he got to Berea, he continued to minister the gospel. And we see that in his moving on, he didn't, neither did he abandon the church. We, we see this first in verse 9. Luke tells us that Paul left Jason there in Thessalonica. Now we don't, as I said, we don't know much about Jason. We know that he was Paul's host there in, in Thessalonica, but that he is named suggests that, that he was a known leader in the church. Have you ever wondered why some people are named and some people aren't in, in the, the New Testament? Well, the, the, the scholars tell us that those who are named are people who are still known in that church. They're, they're people who are, who are still around, people who, who, who can be recognized. And so it, it is probable that Jason was left behind here as a, as a leader in the church of Thessalonica. But the same thing doesn't happen in Berea. There we're told that Paul leaves Silas and Timothy behind. Why? Well, because the opposition there came much more quickly. They didn't have as much time to, to establish the church there. And so he leaves behind Paul and or, or Silas and Timothy to, to do that work of, of continuing to establish and support the church with, with word to, to come to me when it's ready. Come to me when the work is done. I, I'm going to need you 
But for now, I'm going to leave you behind so that you can, can continue to do this work. I'm going to leave because I'm the lightning rod. I'm the one stirring up all the trouble. But I'm going to leave you behind because I don't want to abandon the church. And again, I, I want to suggest to you that this is a model for us to follow today. There may be times when we move on from certain ministry opportunities because of strong or, or hostile opposition. But when we do, we are not moving on from ministry. We are ministers of the gospel. As the church, that is our responsibility. We are ministers of the gospel to one another and in this community. And there may be times when we back away from a certain door because, because God doesn't seem to be opening and the, and the hostility is, is becoming stronger. But when Paul can't go east, he goes west. When Paul has, is forced to leave Thessalonica, he, he goes to Berea and he keeps preaching the gospel. And we must do the same. When God closes a door uh, here for, for a time, we seek to minister the gospel elsewhere. And when we do, we seek to support those who are forced to stay behind. That's what Paul does. That's what we must do. The, the campus minister who's forced off campus must, must still seek to support those students who are there. However, the, the missionary who's forced out of a certain place seeks to support the, the church that's left behind by whatever means are available to him. As you seek to minister even in your own families, you may back off from proclaiming the gospel for a while, but, but you support the loved one whose, whose faith is, is new and, and fragile. We, we move on from certain ministry opportunities, but we don't move on from ministry. And we do not abandon those who have come to faith through the proclamation of the Word. It's what we see in Paul's ministry. So really there are three things here. We, we've seen that the fruit of our ministry is in God's hands. And therefore we must undergird our ministries with, with prayer and with the faithful proclamation of the Word. God's work done in God's way and in God's power. And we've seen that that faithful proclamation of the word will sometimes provoke hostile opposition, and we must be prepared for that. And we must resist the temptation to, 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 to change the message in order to magnify our fruit, because the fruit we want is, is not just numbers. We want the fruit of the gospel, the full gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've seen that when God closes the door to minister here, we simply seek to minister elsewhere. We don't abandon ministry even when we move on from one ministry opportunity. And as I said, when you take all of these points together, what you see is that we are servants, not the Savior. God is the one who is working to save sinners. He has made us heralds of His gospel. and We, we must seek to proclaim that gospel faithfully. We must seek to proclaim that gospel in, in His way. But we must entrust the work to Him. And we must entrust the outcome to Him. And we must entrust the, the road to Him. We are His servants doing the work that He gives us to do as He gives us opportunity to do it in the power that He so generously supplies. That's what it means to be a minister of the gospel. That's who we are in this community. And because God has entrusted such a ministry to us, and because the ministry He has entrusted to us is the ministry of life, even when it's the aroma of death to those who do not believe, because we get to be ministers of such a gospel here and now. That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we come before You astounded that, that You work through Paul. Father, may we learn from, 
your powerful working through him about our own ministry here today. And may we trust, Father, that you are indeed at work through us to, to bring about the fruit of the gospel in this place at this time. Father, give us wisdom as we seek to be faithful. Give us wisdom as we seek to do the work that you have prepared for us to do. Bless that work. Cause it to bring forth fruit. And cause us to always do it in humble reliance upon you and your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.